Good morning. Now I know that last week uh, my my intro might have not might not have been relatable to everybody. Uh, you know, I like bread. Maybe not all of you like bread. Maybe you you know you don't just sneak a hot dog bun by itself and eat it every now and then. Not saying I do that. Uh, maybe maybe you don't like bread. Uh, and in John chapter six, when uh, John chapter five and John chapter six, the the whole account of when G- Jesus feeds the five thousand. I'm sure that he compares himself to bread largely because of its significance to society, right? Because they relied on bread to live. If they did not have bread, they would not have lived. That was their main source of food. And so, you know, I'm sure Jesus could have very well just multiplied some brisket, right? I'm sure that's kind of identifiable in this area, this culture. And, you know, I think actually, I think the Message Bible, the translation says that, Jesus says, I am the brisket of life. If I remember the Message Bible correctly, for those who know the Message Translation and that joke. Anyway, I'm sure Jesus could have done that. You could fill in the blank any sort of food that you particularly rely on that to, desire, to fulfill your desires or your hunger. I'm sure Jesus could have multiplied anything. Uh, but that being said, the people in John chapter 6, if you remember, they are just following Jesus because they had their wants because they had their desires fulfilled. And so Jesus, he's trying to correct their thinking. He's trying to direct them at something else. And he tells them of food that never perishes, but endures to eternal life. Spoiler, him, right? He is that food that endures to eternal life. And so these people, this crowd, they ask him, well, how do we get that food? Right? How do we earn this food? How do we work for this kind of food? And Jesus, he tries to correct their thinking. No, it's not about whether you earn this food or not. You can't work for this food. Right? It's about whether you believe, whether you trust in me. Trust the bread, Jesus being the bread. Right? And so the crowd in John chapter 6, after all of this, after Jesus tells them this, he responds, chapter 6, verse 30, they respond to Jesus. The crowd says to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, initial thoughts might be, well, wait a minute. Did they not just see? Or did they not just see how Jesus multiplied the bread? What, what do you mean, what sign? What do you mean, what work? Were you not paying attention? Right, this initial response from the crowd might be a little confusing. How could they not see and believe? Well, just to kind of provide context, recall the end of John chapter 5 with emphasis on verse 44. How can they not believe? Jesus says in verse 44 of John chapter 5, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So maybe what's going on here is that they're just seeking their own glory. Right? They don't seek God's glory, maybe that's part of the reason why they don't see Jesus, they don't believe Jesus. Truly, there's a lot that clouds their vision. And in John chapter 6, verse 31, it provides a little more context to what might be going on here. So verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they remember the manna. Now, again, providing context, let's go back to Exodus chapter 16. Go back to Exodus 16. What do they remember about the manna? Exodus 16, verse 4 says, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Skip down to verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So one thing you see here, Back in that context, when God provided this bread, He provided it for 40 years. So maybe in John chapter 6, maybe it's not that they didn't see that Jesus did a sign. Maybe they just didn't get what they wanted. Like, hey Jesus, yeah, sure, you know, give us bread for one day, but that's not 40 years, Jesus. You remember how God provided bread for 40 years? They wanted more. And notice in the context, way back in Exodus and even now in John chapter 6, what they're focusing on. Right? They're focusing on the bread. Back in Exodus, they focused on the bread. They focused on the stuff that God gave them. They didn't really focus on God Himself. And in John chapter 6, verse 31 here, it's a little bit ironic that they quote Nehemiah 9. In verse 31, they quote Nehemiah 9, verse 15. So let's go back there. It's a little bit ironic and it provides some context. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9, verse 15, this is what they quote. It says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So they take this verse out of context. They focus on what God gave them with little little attention paid to the following verses. It's a little bit ironic. Look at verses 16 and following. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In the context, right, they focus on what God gave them, but wait a minute, what else? Oh, you didn't pay attention to God. Right? You did not give God honor. You did not obey God. You just were thankful that you got something from Him. You just appreciated what He gave you. You didn't appreciate the giver. And that's the issue here. They're not focusing on God. They're focusing on the stuff that God gave them. And so Jesus, in John chapter 6, he responds, John 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In, the verse, in this verse, maybe Jesus, he says, you know, Moses didn't give you the bread. Maybe they attributed Moses to that. Or maybe they gave Moses all the credit. After all, they do have a tendency to focus on man's work and not God's work. And Jesus, he wants them to focus on something much more important. God gave you that bread. God gave you that manna. But there is something more. There is true bread from heaven. And Jesus decides to make it a little more clear in verse 33 what this true bread is. Verse 33, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life 
to the world. He's the bread. Jesus is the true bread. And, you know, I think this has been sprinkled throughout the beginning of the Gospel of John. Jesus being this man coming down from heaven, bringing a life to the world. This has been traced throughout the beginning of the Gospel of John. Look at John 1, 1. We're going to trace this a little bit. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so we have this idea of the Word being with God and is God. Jesus, of course, being the Word. All right, verse 4. In him, that is the Word, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. All right, so we have the Word of God, who is God, who has life in him. All right, and he was light to men. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word, all right, that Word that is God and is life that is coming into the world, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 51 in chapter 1. And He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why does He have that connection? Because He came from heaven. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Skip down to verse 31, chapter 3. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above, who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 34, chapter 3. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without Measure. You see, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, this has been sprinkled throughout that Jesus is this man coming down from heaven to give life. As John chapter 6, verse 33 says, give life to the world. The world. Now that word there, that Greek word there can just mean people. Mankind, give life to mankind. But that Greek word is cosmos. It can refer to creation as a whole. And so Jesus, he comes down into the world to give life to mankind. I think primarily gives life to mankind, but man, there's so much more to it than that. Jesus gives life to the whole creation. Life it doesn't already have. True life. That could be a whole sermon itself, but we're not going to go there for now. Back to John chapter 6, verse 34. John chapter 6, verse 34. Uh, the crowd's response here, at this point, it's not too surprising. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're still thinking of some physical bread that, they, that can be given to them, and they want it always. I suppose they did not hear the Greek personal program, pronoun, ha, when Jesus says the bread of God is he. The crowd's still thinking of an it. They're not thinking of he, Jesus. The response is not surprising not thinking of Jesus and Jesus decides to get about as clear as it gets verse 35 the first half Jesus said to them I am the bread of life right since you don't get it I'm going to spell it out for you I am the bread of life this bread that I've been talking about is me Stop looking to whatever you think that you have life from. Stop looking to whatever you think sustains you. Stop looking to whatever you think you can rely on to live. Look to me. I'm that bread. I'm the bread of life. He states it so plainly in the the second half of verse 35. 
is very, very important. Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Notice that coming and believing is paired together here. Jesus talks to them synonymously. To come to Jesus means to believe in Jesus. We shall not hunger or thirst when that happens. Now, do you think that he's talking about literal thirst and literal hunger? No. So what I think is going on here is Jesus, he's talking about our deepest, most basic desire and longing that cannot be fulfilled by anything in the world except him. They can only be satisfied by him. And unfortunately, so many people do not see Jesus as all satisfying. But if we really understand him to be uh, the light of the world, the, the one who sustains life itself, then we understand him to be all satisfying. See, what it really looks like to come and believe is that you finally see Jesus as, as the deepest satisfaction of your deepest desire. You could go hungry, but still be satisfied by Jesus. You could go thirsty, but still be satisfied by Jesus. You could lose your home, but still be satisfied by Jesus. You could lose every single possession you have, but still be satisfied by Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 8. The words of the Apostle Paul, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, Garbage, in order that I might gain Christ. See, just saying you believe, just saying I believe in Jesus, without any sort of deep satisfaction, understanding him to be the deepest satisfaction of your, your most basic desires, just saying that, just saying without any satisfaction, I don't think that's really what it is to believe. What it really is to come to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that once you come to Jesus, once you believe in Jesus, I'm not saying that you're not going to have any desires that try to compete with your desire for Jesus. But when you come and believe, I hope you see him as supremely satisfying. In comparison to everything else, Jesus is most satisfying. And Jesus continues. John chapter 6, verse 36. Jesus says, But I, I said to you, that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus standing right in front of them, saying plainly he is the bread of life. They still don't believe. They don't see him as all satisfying. In verse 37, this verse is probably the most difficult out of the whole text for a number of reasons. There are a few ways people interpret this. We're going to read it and we're going to just talk about it briefly. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, there are two ways people have interpreted this verse. One, there are some people who say that the Father's giving causes people to come. Two, there are some who would say that people, uh, the people coming is evidence of the Father's giving. All right? So the first interpretation is usually taken by Calvinists. All right? The second interpretation is usually taken by Arminians or people with 
uh, who hold a free will theology kind of perspective. All right? So the first interpretation, if you were to say it a little differently, is that they would say God gives some and not others. Right? And they would say we only come because we have been given. The second interpretation would say that those who come are the given, we may come or not. I would provide you a third option. Those who come are the given, we come because of God's work in our life, people may come or not. Notice the nuance there, right? I don't think I believe without God's work in my life. But that being said, people, I still think people can come or cannot. I'm not on board with Calvinists. I'm not fully on board with free will theology. After all, Romans chapter 6, we are slaves to what? Sin, right? We are slaves to sin before we come to who? Christ. All right, so I think we have a will. Before anybody casts any stones, I think we absolutely have a will. But for our will to be truly free, Christ has to free it. Now, all this being said, maybe we can have a class on those two views to go in more in depth sometime. What I really want to focus on is verse 37, that's verse 37, that second half there. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes, whoever believes, right, when you recognize Jesus as the deepest satisfaction of your deepest desire that nobody else can satisfy, he's never going to cast you out. Never. I think you can have absolute certainty about your salvation, church. When you've come, when you have believed Jesus, he's never going to cast you out. There's no reason for you to be unsure about your salvation because Jesus has you. He has you. Verse 38, Jesus continues on. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What will, Jesus? Verse 39 answers, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus, he's not going to lose a single person who have found him as their deepest desire. He's not going to lose a single person that has come and that has believed. And for those people, he says he'll raise it up on the last day. Now that word there might be a little confusing. Why do you say it? What does it mean to raise it up on the last day? Now that pronoun there for it can just refer to Mankind, right? Men and women, them, they, the people who have come and who have believed, he will raise them up on the last day. When the perishable will put on the imperishable, when God will wipe away every single tear, when we will dwell with God in perfection. And Jesus sums all this up nicely in verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Come, believe, trust the all-satisfying Savior. I pray see him as that. Because I've encountered so many people who profess belief but they don't really find a deep satisfaction in Jesus. They're still holding on to their possessions. They're still holding on to what they think they have security in. They don't find satisfaction in Christ. If you have not found your satisfaction in Christ, you can as we stand and sing.